Chapter Twelve of the De Bercy Affair by Gordon Holmes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: The Saracen Dagger. Next morning, just as the clock was striking eight, Osborne was rising from his bed after a night of unrest, when Jenkins rapped at the door and came in, deferential and calm. "Mrs. Marsh below to see you, sir," he announced. Osborne blinked and stared with the air of a man not thoroughly awake, though it was his mind, not his body, that was torpid. "'Mrs.,' he said. "'Not Miss?' "'No, sir. Mrs.' "'I'll be there in five minutes,' he hissed, with a fierce arousing of his faculties, and never before had he flung on his clothes in such a flurry of haste. In less than five minutes he was flying down the stairs. "'Forgive me,' broke from his lips as he entered the drawing-room, and, "'Forgive me,' his visitor was saying to him in the same instant. It was pitiful to see her, she ever so enthroned in serenity, from whom such a thing as agitation had seemed so remote, was wildly agitated now. That pathetic pallor of the aged when their heart is in labour now underlay her skin. Her lips, her fingers, trembled, the tip of her nose, showing under her half-raised veil, was pinched. "'The early hour! It is so distressing! I beg your forgiveness! I am in most dreadful trouble!' "'Please sit down,' he said, touching her hand, "'and let me get you some breakfast. No, nothing! I couldn't eat! It is Rosalind!' Now he, too, went a shade paler. "'What of Rosalind?' "'Do you by chance know anything of her whereabouts?' no she has disappeared her head bowed and a sob broke from her bosom disappeared his lips breathed the word foolishly after her while he looked at her almost stupidly mrs marsh's hand dropped with a little nervous fling she has not been at home all night she left the house apparently between four and five yesterday i was out then i came in then you called she has not come home. It is impossible to conceive. Oh, she has slept with some friend, he said, feeling that the world reeled around him. No, she has never done that without letting me know. She would surely have telegraphed me. It is quite impossible even to imagine what dispensation of God... She stopped, her lips working, suddenly covering her eyes with her hand, as another sob gushed from her. She humbly muttered, forgive me i am nearly out of my senses he sprang up touched a bell and whispered to jenkins who instantly was with him brandy quick then running to kneel at the old lady's chair he touched her left hand saying take heart trust in god's providence rely upon me you believe then that you may find her surely whatever else i may fail in i could not fail now just one sip of this to oblige me. Jenkins had stolen in, and she drank a little out of the glass that Osborne offered. You must think it odd, she said, that I come to you. I could not give a reason, but I was so distracted and benumbed, I thought of you, and felt impelled. You were right, he said. I am the proper person to appeal to in this case. Besides, she was here yesterday. Rosalind? The fact is, oh she was here well that is something discovered 
I did well to come. Yes, you were saying... I will tell you everything. Three days ago she wrote me a letter. Rosalind? Are you astonished? I understood. I thought that your friendship with her had suffered some... check. That is so, said Osborne with a bent head. You may remember the night of the dance at the Abbey down at Tormouth. That night, when I was full of hopes of her favour, she suddenly cast me off like a burr from her robe. I am not even now sure why, unless she had discovered that my name was not Glynn. If so, she no doubt considered that a sufficient reason, Mr. Osborne, said Mrs. Marsh, a chill in her tone. One does not like the names of one's friends to be detachable labels. Don't think that I blame her one bit, cried Osborne, no more than I blame myself. I was ordered by the police to take a name. There seemed to be a good reason for it. I only blame my baleful fate. Anyway, so it was. She dropped me, into the pit. But she was at the inquest. Indeed? At the inquest? She was there? Singular. Deeply veiled, she didn't think, I suppose, that I should know. But I should feel her presence in the blackest... Mr. Osborne, I must beg, do not make your declarations to me. May I not? Be good, be pitiful. Here am I, charged with guilt, conscious of innocence. Let us suppose all that, but are you a man free to make declarations of love? One would say that you are, as it were, married for some time to come to the lady who has lately been buried. True, said Osborne, in the eyes of the world, in a formal way but in the eyes of those near to me? Oh, I appeal to your indulgence, your friendship, your heart. Tell me that you forgive, that you understand me, and then I shall be so exuberantly gladsome that in the sweep of my exhilaration I shall go straight and find her, wherever she lies hidden. Will you not say yes on those terms? He smiled wanly, with a hungry cajolery, looking into her face. But she did not unbend. Let us first find her, and then other things may be discussed. But to find her, it is past all knowing. Oh, deep is the trouble of my soul to-day, Mr. Osborne. Wait, hope. But you were speaking of yesterday. Yes, she was at the inquest, and when I saw her, think how I felt. I said, she believes in me, and three days after that she wrote to me. My poor Rosalind! murmured Mrs. Marsh. She suffered more than I imagined. Her nature is more recondite than the well in which truth dwells. What could she have written to you? That I don't know. How? As I was about to open the letter, a telegram came from her. Don't read my letter. I will call for it unopened in person, it said. Picture my agony, then and now I am going to tell you something that will move you to compassion for me, if you never had it before. Yesterday she called for the letter. I was with you at Porchester Gardens at that very hour. When I came home, an extraordinary scene awaited me with my secretary, a Miss Prout. I tell you this as to a friend, a mother, who will believe even the incredible. An extraordinary scene. Without the least warning, the least encouragement that I know of, Miss Prout declared herself in love with me. While I stood astonished, she fainted. I bore her to a sofa. Soon after she opened her eyes, she... drew... 
me to her. No, I will say I was not to blame, and I was in that situation when the library door opened, and who should be there looking at me but, yes, she. Mrs. Marsh's eyes fell. There was a little pressure of the lips that revealed scant sympathy with compromising situations. And suddenly a thought turned her skin to a ghastlier white. What if the sight of that scene accounted for Rosalind's disappearance? If Rosalind was dead, by her own act? The old lady had often to admit that she did not know the deepest deeps of her daughter's character. But she banished the half-thought hurriedly, contenting herself with saying aloud, that made the second time she came to you yesterday. Why a second time? I have no idea, was the dismayed reply. She uttered not one word, just turned away and hurried out to her waiting cab, and by the time I could wring myself free and run after her, the cab was going off. I shouted, I ran at top speed, she would not stop. I think a man was in the cab with her. A man, you say? I think so. I just caught a glimpse of a face that looked out sideways. A dark man, he seemed to me. I'm not sure. It becomes more and more mysterious. Well, we must be making a move to do something. First, have you breakfasted? She had eaten nothing. Osborne persuaded her to join him in a hurried meal, during which his motor-car arrived, and soon they set off together. He was for going straight to the police but she shrank from the notoriety of that final exposure until she had the clear assurance that it was absolutely necessary. So they drove from friend to friend of the Marshes, who might possibly have some information, then drove home to Mrs. Prosser's to see if there was news. Osborne had luncheon there, a polite pretense at eating, since they were too full of wonder and woe to care for food. By this time Mrs. Marsh had unbent somewhat to Osborne, and humbly enough had said to him, "'Oh, find her, and if she is alive, every other consideration shall weigh less than my boundless gratitude to you.' After the luncheon they again drove about London, making inquiries without hope wherever the least chance of a clue lay. And finally, near six, they went to Scotland Yard. To Inspector Winter in his office the whole tale was told and after sitting at his desk in a long silence, frowning upon the story, he said at last, "'Well, there is, of course, a great deal more in this than meets the eye.' He spun round to Mrs. Marsh. "'Has your daughter undergone anything to upset her at home lately?' "'Nothing,' was the answer. "'One of the servants in the house has had a sort of hysteria, but that did not trouble Rosalind beyond the mere exercise of womanly sympathy.' any visitors any odd circumstance in that way no unusual visitors except an inspector fourneau who twice i think had interviews with her she was not very explicit in telling me the subject of them inspector fourneau muttered winter to himself he said i thought somehow this thing was connected with feldisham mansions and at once now with a little start he asked what, by the way, is the name of the servant who has had the hysteria? Her name is Pauline, answered Mrs. Marsh, a French girl. Ah, Pauline, said Winter, just so. The fewness of his words gave proof of the activity of his brain. 
He knew how Clark had obtained the diary of Rose de Bercy from Pauline, and he felt that Pauline was in some undetermined way connected with the murder. He knew, too, that she was now to be found somewhere in Porchester Gardens, and had intended looking her up for general inquiries before two days had passed. That Pauline might actually have had a hand in the crime had never entered into his speculations. He was far too hot in these days on the trail of Fourneau, who was being constantly watched by his instructions. "'I think I will see this Pauline to-night,' he said. "'Meantime, I can only recommend you to hope, Mrs. Marsh. These things generally have some simple explanation in the end, and turn out less black than they look. Expect me, then, at your residence within an hour.' But when Mrs. Marsh and Osborne were gone, he was perplexed, remembering that this was Thursday evening, for he had promised himself on this very evening to be at a spot which he had been told by one of his men that Furneaux had visited on two previous Thursday evenings, a spot where he would see a sight that would interest him. While he was on the horns of the dilemma as to going there, or going to Pauline, Inspector Clark entered, and at once Winter shelved upon Clark the business of sounding Pauline. "'You seem to have a lot of power over her, to make her give up the diary so promptly,' he said to Clark. "'Go to her, then. Get at the bottom of this business, and see if you cannot hit upon some connection between the disappearance of Miss Marsh and the murder of the actress.' Clark stood up with alacrity, and started off. Presently Winter himself was in a cab, making for the Brompton Cemetery. As for Clark, the instant he was within sight of Porchester Gardens, his whole interest turned from Pauline Desaux and the vanished Rosalind to two men whom he saw in the street almost opposite the house in which Pauline lay. They were Janoc and the Italian Antonio, and Antonio seemed to be reasoning and pleading with Janoc, who had the gestures of a man distracted. Hanging about near them was a third man, whom Clark hardly noticed, a loafer in a long coat of rags, a hat without any crown, and visible toes, a diminutive loafer, Fourneau, in fact, who, for his own reasons, was also interested in Janoc in these days. Every now and again Janoc looked up at the windows of Mrs. Marsh's residence with frantic gestures and a crying face, a thing which greatly struck Clark and anon the loafer passed by Janoc and Antonio, unobserved, peering into the gutter for the cast-aside ends of cigars and cigarettes. Instantly Clark stole down the opposite side of the square into which the house faced. Looking about him, saw no one, climbed some railings, and then through the bushes stole near to the pavement where the foreigners stood. There, concealed in the shrubbery, he could clearly hear Janoc say, Am I never to see her? My little one! But I am about to see her. I will knock at that door and clasp her in my arms. My friend, be reasonable, pleaded Antonio, holding the arm of Janoc, who made more show of tearing himself free than he made real effort, with that melodramatic excess of gesture to which the Latin races are prone. Be reasonable! Oh, she is wiser than you! She has hidden herself from you, because she realizes the danger of being seen near you even in the dark. Be sure that she has longed to see you as keenly as you hunger to see her. But she feels that there must be no meeting with so many spying eyes in the world. 
Let them spy, but they shall not keep me from the embrace of one whom I love, of one who has suffered, said Janoc, covering his face. Oh, when I think of your cruelty, you who all the time knew where she was and did not tell me. I confess it, but I acted for the best, said Antonio. She wrote to me three days after the murder, so that she might have news of you. I met her, and received from her that bit of lace from the actress's dress, which I put into Osborne's bag at Tormouth, to throw still more doubt upon him. But she implored me not to reveal to you where she was, lest, if you should be seen with her, suspicion of the murder might fall upon you. "'Her heart's goodness! My sister! My little one!' exclaimed Janoc. "'Only be patient,' wooed Antonio. "'Do not go to her. Soon she will make her escape to France, and you also, and then you will embrace the one the other. And now you have no longer cause for much anxiety as to her capture, for the dagger cannot be found with her, since it lies safe in your room, in your own keeping, and to-night you will drop it into the river, where it will be buried for ever. Do not go to her." These were the last words of the dialogue that Clark heard, for the tidings that the dagger was in Janoc's room sent him creeping away through the bushes. He was soon over the railings and in a cab, making for Soho, and behind him in another cab went Fourneau, whose driver, looking at his fare's attire, had said, "'Pay first, and then I'll take you.' Clark, for his part, had no difficulty in entering Janoc's room with his skeleton keys. Indeed, he had been there before. Nor was there any difficulty in finding the dagger. There it lay, with another, in the narrow cardboard box into which Rosalind had put both weapons, on finding them behind the shelf of books in Pauline's room. Clark's eyes, as they fell at last upon that Saracen blade, which he knew so well without ever having seen it, poured, gloated over it, with a glitter in them. He relocked the trunk, relocked the door, and with the box held fast, ran down the three steps to his cab, feeling himself a made man, a head taller than all Scotland Yard that night. He put his precious find on the interior front seat of the cab, a four-wheeler, for in his eagerness he had jumped into the first wheeled thing that he had seen, and, having lodged the box inside, being anxious to hide it, he made a step forward toward the driver, to tell him whither he had now to drive. Then he entered, shut the door, and as the vehicle drove off, put out his hand to the box to feast his eyes on its contents again. But the box was gone. No daggers were there. "'Stop!' howled Clark. The cab stopped, but it was all in vain. The loafer, who had opened the other door of the cab with swift deftness while Clark spoke to the driver, had long since turned a near corner with box and daggers, and was well away. Clark, standing in the street, glanced up at the sky, down at the ground, and stared round about, like a man who does not know in which world he finds himself. Meantime, Fourneau hailed another cab, again having to pay in advance, and started off on the drive to Brompton Cemetery, where Winter was already in hiding, awaiting his arrival. Something like a storm of wind was tearing the night to pieces, and the trees of the place of graves gesticulated as if they were wrangling. The moon had moved up, all involved in heavy clouds, whose grotesque shapes her glare struck into garish contrasts of black against silver. Fourneau bent his way against the gale, 
holding on his dilapidated hat, his rags fluttering fantastically behind him, till he came to the one grave he sought, the cheerless resting-place of Rose de Bercy. The very spirit of gloom and loneliness brooded here, in a nook almost enclosed with foliage. As yet no stone had been erected. The grave was just a narrow oblong of red marl and turf, which the driven rain had now made soft and yielding. On it lay two withered wreaths. Fourneau, standing by it, took off his hat, and the rain flecked his hair. Then from a breast-pocket of his rags he took out a little funnel of paper, out of which he cast some parma violets upon the mound. This was Thursday, and Rose de Bercy had been murdered on a Thursday. After that he stood there perhaps twenty minutes, his head bent in meditation. Then he peered cautiously into the dark about him, took a penknife with a good-sized blade from a pocket, and with it set to work to make a grave within the grave, a grave just big and deep enough to contain the box with the daggers. He buried his singular tribute and covered it over. After this he waited silently, apparently lost in thought, for some ten minutes more. Then, with that curious omniscience which sometimes seemed to belong to the man, he sent a strange cry into the gloom. "'Are you anywhere about, Winter?' Nor was there anything aggressive in the call. It was subdued, sad, touched with solemnity, like the voice of a man who had wept and dried his eyes. There was little delay before Winter appeared out of the shadow of his ambush. "'I am,' he said. He was amazed beyond expression, yet his colleague had ever been incomprehensible in some things. "'Windy night,' said Fourneau, in an absurd affectation of ease. "'And wet,' said Winter, utterly at a loss how to take the other. "'Odd that we should both come to visit the poor thing's grave at the same hour,' remarked Fourneau. "'It may be odd,' agreed Winter. There was a bitter silence. Then Fourneau's cold voice was heard again. "'I dare say, now, it seems to you a suspicious thing that I should come to this grave at all.' "'Why should it, Fourneau?' asked his chief bluntly. "'Yes, why?' said Fourneau. "'I once knew her. I told you from the first that I knew her. I remember, you did.' You asked no questions as to how I came to know her, or how long, or under what circumstances. Why did you not ask? Such questions occur among friends, and I might have told you. But you did not ask. Tell me now. Winter, I'd see you hanged first. The words came in a sharp rasp, his first sign of anger. Hanged? repeated Winter, flushing. You'll see me hanged? I usually see the hangings, Fourneau. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you are not half smart enough. Fourneau barked the taunt like a dog at him. Of the two, the big bluff man of Anglo-Saxon breed, mystified and saddened though he was, showed more self-control than the excitable little man more French than English. This is an occasion when I leave the smartness to you, Fourneau, he said bitterly though there is a sort of clever duplicity which ought to be drained out of the blood, even if it cost a limb, or a life. Ah, you prove yourself a trusty friend, loyal to the backbone. For heaven's sake, make no appeal to our friendship. What? Appeal? Oh, this is too much. You are trying me beyond endurance. 
Can't you understand? Why keep up this farce of pretense? There was genuine emotion in Winter's voice, but Furneaux's harsh laugh mingled with the soughing of the laden branches that tossed in the wind. Farce indeed, he cried. I refuse to continue it. Go then and be punished. You deserve it. You, whom I trusted more than a brother. He turned on his heel and made off, a weird figure in those wind-blown tatters, and Winter watched him with eyes that had in them some element of fear, almost of hope, for in that hour he could have forgiven Furneaux were he standing by his corpse. But the instinct of duty soon came uppermost. He had seen his colleague bury something in the grave, and the briefest search brought to light the daggers in their cardboard coffin. Even in that overwhelming gloom of night and shivering hues, he recognized one of the weapons. A groan broke from him, as it were, in protest. Mad, he sighed, stark raving mad, to leave this here, where he knew I must find it. My poor Fourneau! Perhaps that is best. I must defer action for a few hours, if only to give him a last chance. While the chief inspector was stumbling to the gate of the cemetery, which was long since closed to all except those who could show an official permit, one of his subordinates was viewing the Feldisham mansion's crime in a far different light. Inspector Clark, in whom elation at his discovery was chastened by chagrin at his loss, was walking towards Scotland Yard and saying to himself, I can prove, anyhow, that I took the rotten things from his trunk. So now, Monsieur Genoc, the next and main item is to arrest you. End of chapter 12